Uh, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, it's great to be with you guys this morning uh, to go in our third week in the book of Hebrews. And so if you have a Bible, man, gear up, grab it, uh, turn to chapter two. We're going to be in the first nine verses of that text this morning. Um, so many of you might not know this, but my wife Colleen and I went to the Republic of Georgia. Now, some of you are like thinking already, like, okay, where is that? What is the Republic of Georgia? So to kind of give a little bit of map, if you know a little geography, you have the, the country of Russia, and then you have the country of Turkey, the Black Sea, and then this little tiny country called Georgia, okay? It's about the size of, of West Virginia, so it's fairly small, but we went there. Uh, we left on the 11th. We got back this last week on, on Wednesday night. Um, and it was, it was a very ruthless travel time, by the way. It took about 30 hours to get there of travel time and then about 30 hours back. But man, it was well worth the time. It was, the time, it was a well worth the time invested in that country to learn about those people, learn about what Jesus is doing there. But so, so some of the background that we got on Georgia was really by experience in, in some ways. And so to know a Georgian people is to know that there are people that care about others. In fact, when you, when you walk off the airplane into their, their city, uh, Tbilisi, uh, which is their major capital city there, uh, there's an there's a emblem on the ground, like it's engraved on the ground for everyone who's a guest in their country to see. It says, welcome to Tbilisi, the city that loves you. And it wasn't like this just regular sentiment where they're just kind of throwing it out there. Like, we really experienced that. Like, they, they care for foreigners. They care for visitors in their country really well. Like, it's, hospitality is through the roof for these people. And the craziest thing about that, it doesn't just extend to visitors. It actually extends to their family and neighbors. Like, like I asked a woman, I was like, so if your neighbor's in need and they need money or uh, they, they don't have any more hot water, what do you do? And they say, man, we drop everything and go help. Like, it was beautiful. It was amazing to see the culture of these people. Now, this country is labeled for us as a low-access country, meaning that it has a low access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for someone to, to bump into someone that's, that's known as a follower of Jesus, it got about a 1 in 100 chance of doing that. And so to give a little perspective for us, like in the United States, we have a 1 in 4 chance of bumping into someone who would ascribe to be a follower of Jesus. And so uh, th it's a very interesting place in that way. Uh, but the weird thing about it is they have this religion called, uh, it, it's kind of pseudo-Christian, it's called Easter, Eastern Orthodoxy. And, and so this thing has been going on for about 1,600 years there, and that's their major religion. And, and it's full of actually really great things. Like, they are faithful people to pray. Like, they go to their knees. They pray a lot. Um, they're faithful to, to observe the Sabbath. And like I said before, like, man, they know how to love people. Like, they do a really good job of caring for people. But then there's some not-so-great things about their faith in the fact that, like, they don't believe that they have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they believe that they have to actually work for their salvation rather than it coming from the grace of God. And, and they're also a people that don't have access to Scripture because only their priests are allowed to read and interpret the Bible. And so they can't even hear from God uh, through his word. And so there's some things in there that aren't so great. But I say all of that because that's actually not where they began. That's not the way they started out. Legend has it, the apostle Andrew came up to Georgia and preached the gospel, and they received it and, 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 and proclaimed it all over their country, and, and they were excited about it. They were a country where you saw a revival happen. But as time went on, that gospel that they first placed their faith in, well, they started to drift away from it. They started to drift away from it and started going into following rules and regulations and rituals rather than who they had placed their faith in, so much so that today it's not even reminiscent of what they started. It, it doesn't look like the faith that they originated with. In fact, it looks like it was never there to begin with. 
But City Light, we actually are in danger of the same thing. We have a risk of drifting away from the Jesus who loves us, the thing, the person that we're anchored in, because, well, we, we live in a world that's constantly calling us to drift away, right? Like, it's constantly calling us to be about ourselves and not the other people. It's, it's constantly hypnotizing us into the being entertained rather than allowing Jesus to rule and reign in our life. It's constantly calling us to drift from our hope in Jesus into a hope of governments or some sort of world ideology, whether it be FOMO, YOLO, or man, get it while you can because tomorrow we die. Whatever that ideology or wisdom is, it's constantly calling us into that rather than being anchored and rooted in Jesus Christ. So, so while the world is tugging away at us, uh, our safe harbor, the place that we're, we're called to be anchored into, is Jesus himself. And, and we have this subtle drift being pulled away from it. And so that's what our text is about today. It's, it's about a people who are subtly drifting away from the hope that they have in Jesus. And so it's a warning against this drifting into being stagnant in their faith. And it's compelling us to stay geared, anchored into Jesus and looking toward our real hope and eternal salvation. And so as we look at that, let's open our Bibles. Let's take a look at the first four verses of this text. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the, great, by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the first uh, point we see from the author is the anchor that stops a drifting faith. The anchor that stops a drifting faith. So right out the gate, the author said, man, I want you to pay closer attention to what you have heard lest you drift away. So he's calling out the hazard of drifting away. And the language used here is kind of a, a nautical language. Now, I'm not a wealthy person, and I've never sailed before, so don't look at me as an expert right now, okay? But I, don't, but I did do a little bit of reading so I can know what that means to say something's nautical. So what, what I mean by that is uh, it's, it's basically what would happen is a ship would sail into harbor, and it would put down an anchor to the bottom of the ocean floor, right? And the way that, that what that would do is put it in the place that it should be. It was exactly where it wanted to be, but... Every now and then, if the, if the anchor came up just a little or it broke, the ship would drift, which is just a beautiful Im imagery for the book of Hebrews because the truth of the matter is what the, the visual is, is, man, this is a people who were once anchored in Jesus, but now that anchor is starting to come up or break or loosen a little, and they're drifting away from that truth. You see, we are a ship if we're a follower of Jesus who is anchored in him, and so we are where we're supposed to be positionally, but... Because of life, sometimes we don't even notice, but that anchor starts to loosen up a little bit. And, and so this text is calling us and warning us, hey, stay rooted, stay anchored in Jesus. And so this drift, though, is unintentional. It's an unintentional drift sometimes, and, and that's the danger of it is, is because it comes from like a carelessness or a, a distraction or even like when life gets a little tough, sometimes that anchor starts to come up a little bit. So like when life rubs against our boat, what happens is we don't always notice that our anchor has come loose. In fact, many of us have placed our faith in Jesus. We sign on the proverbial dotted line, yes, I follow Jesus. But as life goes on, we start to just say, okay, Jesus, now I can do it on my own. And in that, we start to, to work out this salvation through morals and, and through just a, gr a group of facts that we say we believe. You see, the excitement of our, our f excitement for Jesus has kind of started to worn off a little bit. 
We, 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 we came from our initial experience with the Savior, and now all of a sudden it's kind of like, okay, it's normal now, right? And so what happens is we don't notice these subtle changes in what we think, believe, and do. We don't notice that, man, I, I don't know if I talk to God as much as I used to anymore. Or, or this, this slow, subtle thing that we don't notice that, man, when things get difficult, man, rather than going straight to Jesus and going to him for, for peace and, 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 and excitement over this thing and, and seeing it come through, well, the only thing I really go to is I really want this circumstance to change. Uh, we might not notice that we aren't as excited to share this faith that saved us from Satan's sin and death as much as we used to because, well, it is what it is. It's normal. We may not notice that we are more okay with our pet sins than we used to be, meaning we're okay with the sin because, well, it's not that bad. So, so what is that for you? What, what are those things that, that, that in life you may not have noticed that they have subtly started to drift your heart away from Jesus, that you're drifting because you're not paying attention? And maybe it's something that you've you started to build a routine out of or something that's just kind of commonplace and you've gotten used to. It might not innately be bad, but it's caused you to, to loosen up a little bit on that anchor. Like, for instance, uh, listening to the voices of social media or some sort of uh, television show rather than the word of God to gain your wisdom. Or may, maybe it's just simply as putting more and more hours into your job because you find your identity and, and, and your value in doing that rather than the person work of Jesus. Maybe it's that boyfriend or girlfriend that you've been talking to for a while, and all of a sudden your focus isn't on the anchor, but it's uh, focused on that relationship. Uh, maybe it's just school. Maybe it's, it's, it's saying, hey, man, I need to get the best grades I can, and so right now, this is what I have time to be anchored in and focused in, and while you're doing that, your boat's drifting. Or maybe it's just simply as trying to please the people in your life so much so that you can't rest in Jesus. What is that thing for you? What is that thing that's pulling you slowly away from your first love? You see, for me, this is what it usually works out to be. It's I start to become a human doing rather than a human being. What I, what I mean by that is I start to find my value and my significance in all the things that I do and all, all the, the accomplishments and, and, and the, the productivity of my life. And what happens is I become this insecure individual because I'm like I'm failing in everything that I'm doing. And so therefore, I don't know what to do now, and I've drifted away from the anchor that holds me. That's how that plays out in my life. I start to look at what I'm doing rather than being and resting in the peace of Jesus, allowing him to inform the life rather than the life leading me away. It's a dangerous thing to not be anchored in Jesus. Verse 2 gives us one of those dangers. He, he says we, we can start to think that this whole thing is about being a good person and following some moral codes, right? So it refers to the law here because it's saying the message that the angels brought, that message is the law of God, which, mind you, is a good thing. It's a pure thing. It's a holy thing. However, as we saw in chapter 1, Jesus is greater than the angels, right? And therefore, he's greater than the message that they brought. He's actually the fulfillment of that law. He's superior to it. And so this letter being written primarily to Jews or people who are basically taking this law and taking it very seriously as they should. However, what happened was they heard the gospel was the completion of that and started to ignore that reality. You see, they started to drift into the, the idea of, of works-based salvation, meaning I'm going to obey the law in order to appease God, which is the ultimate denial and neglect of the power of the gospel. It's a neglect of our salvation through Jesus to operate in that way. So our, our, our drift isn't always this rebellious thing that we go off, off on the handle or this thing where we're taking on more of the world's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. Sometimes, sometimes 
It's just a subtle lie that says, hey, I'm good because I'm better off than the other person. Sometimes it's the subtle lie that, hey, man, I'm, I'm doing enough good things and I haven't done anything heinous, and so I'm, I'm doing all right. I go to church, I read my Bible sometimes, and I put a little bit of money in the offering box, so I'm good. You see, the drift is, is thinking that this thing called Christianity is more about the rituals and our behavior, basically religion, rather than a relationship with Jesus Christ, our God. So when we were there in Georgia, uh, Colleen and I, we, uh, we went to these churches that are 1,600 years old, like literally the buildings, the structures, 1,600 years old. So they, they were like all over the place. They had lots of them. But when you would enter into them, they were pretty lifeless. Like they were kind of dingy and dark, and, and I would even say somewhat scary at times when I was in them. And, and it's become this tourist attraction rather than a place of worship for King Jesus. And as, as you looked at the structure, and if you looked really closely, you start to see, wait a minute. It wasn't always that way. In fact, the individuals who structured it and painted it and put their lives into it, you can tell they had a passion and a drive for Jesus Christ. They wanted to display his beauty from this work. However, 1,600 years later, you can't see a glimpse of that. There's tons of people walking through as tourists and even as faithful religious followers who don't have the passion for Jesus and who, who have a neglected faith. Uh, this is why it's so valuable that we, we go to these places, by the way, that we would continue as followers of Jesus to go to places like Georgia, but then also places locally that we would deem to be dark places to proclaim the excellence, the greatness of Jesus. We mustn't drift so much that we, we neglect to tell others about the greatness of Jesus. We must point them to actually what verses 3 and 4 is pointing us to. It's pointing us to the greatness of our salvation. And it's asking the question, man, how could you neglect it? How could you neglect such great a salvation? You see, this message that brings about salvation came through the mouth of Jesus. It was witnessed by those who would give their lives ultimately for it. And then it was witnessed by the fact that God the Holy Spirit would do miraculous gifts and wonders among people and even now. And so we know that it's true. We know that it's good. We see it evident in our own life. The fact that we were lost and now are found, that we were dead and now alive. And yet the question still holds, how could you neglect it? Well, simply put, it's part of being a human. It's part of human nature to drift and neglect what was once precious to us, right? Like, if we aren't intentional, this happens to everything in our life. It's like our kids, right? So you get them these Christmas gifts. You, you've thought about them. You maybe even prayed about them. It's like, hey, I'm going to get you this really cool gift. And they get it, and they're like, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. And then a week later, it's back on top of the pile of the other neglected toys. Or for my kids, a day later. Like, it's done, right? Or I, I even see it in marriages. In our marriages, man, you see the pomp, the fuss, the excitement over, man, God has given me this special person to be with me for the, to the end of my life. What a wonderful gift. We're excited about it. But then after the pomp and fuss is over, the celebration is over, we start to, we begin to kind of neglect our spouse. Or even we start to just take them for granted. We no longer see them as the precious gift that God has given, but more of a means to an end. Or worse, a roommate who's there to partner with in order for us to parent our kids. What happened? Well, what happened is that we neglect those gifts by a lack of intentionality. You see, our hearts lose focus on the grandeur, the beauty of the gift that's been given to us. And so we start to become complacent in that. The, the more complacent in something you get, the more apt you are to neglect that very thing. 
And we do this same thing with our salvation. This great salvation that God has given us. He came and died for our sins. And I get to spend eternity with him in just a blissful relationship. And yet, as time goes on, as I neglect, as I lose focus, as I become complacent, well, it becomes a means to an end. I don't have to go to hell anymore. Now I get to go to heaven. And I'm going to do the minimal standard of what I need to do in order for God to leave me alone and I can do what I want. Right? And so there's these two, two powers of drifting where you, you have the complacency, but then you have the one of diminishing returns, right? The law of diminishing returns. We all suffer, suffer from this one. It means that the more you consume of something, the less satisfying it is, right? So this is a part of the human experience. Think about it, Chick-fil-A, right? Like when it came to South Point Lincoln, it was like, what? Right? Everybody's excited. You pulled up in the drive-thru. They gave you your chicken sandwich. You smothered that thing with Chick-fil-A sauce and was like, mmm, so good, right? Like it was delicious. And your third bite, you remember this interaction, right? Like it was wonderful experience. And then that third sandwich you bought, you still love that. But do you remember the second time you went or the third or the fourth time you went back? Well, no. It's become normal at this point, right? Like, it's just, well, we got Chick-fil-A. Like, they're opening up another one down the road, and I'm convinced it's going to be like, oh, yeah, Chick-fil-A. Okay. Right? Like, it's, it's not going to be as exciting anymore. Some of you might be in denial. It's like, well, it's closer. It doesn't matter how close it is. Like, it's diminished in its return at some point, right? Like, because it becomes normal. It becomes ordinary to us, and so it loses its flavor over time. And that's what the author is warning us as the church against in our text. He's warning us today about this very thing, that Jesus is greater than Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A, man, while it's good, it does lose flavor. It loses its goodness over time. Your appetite has a limit. Chick-fil-A has a limit. But God, man, his value, his greatness, his goodness, his beauty, the joy, the majesty of him has no limits at all. He's the only thing that we can consume over and over and over again. And the value and the joy just continues to increase every single time we anchor down in him. The gospel doesn't change. It never ends. It's not new, but it is renewed every single time we go back to it. Every time. Remembering, savoring, embracing Jesus and the gospel doesn't return void for us. The gospel isn't something that we should actually get bored of. Listen. Living a life to be a good person is boring and lame, okay? Like, it's a, it's a terrible hobby to get into that, that work, right? So, like, don't make this, like, your goal in life. Don't make this in January your New Year's resolution to just be a good person, okay? But living a life for the name, through the name of Jesus Christ, however, is eternal. It's, it's worth it. It's everlasting. That's worthy of committing your whole life to. See, we often think the gospel is something that, man, we... I, okay, I get it. I can get bored with this because I've learned it. I understand the doctrine. Let's move on to something deeper. Really? Something deeper than the fact that the God of the universe came down, put on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died the death that you deserve, raised from the grave, and literally that's never happened in all of life in and of itself, right? Something deeper than Jesus? That's hard to believe. Like, you can't get bored with this. You see, the, the, if you get bored with the gospel, the solution to that is to go to the gospel itself. It's an unfolding, never-ending grace that keeps on giving to us. It's, it's the deeper thing. It's the, the depths of joy. It's the depth, depths of life for us. See, that's my desire for our church, actually. My desire is that the gospel will continue to renew our hearts, renew our souls, which is why you're going to constantly hear Jesus, 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 because that's what I want in us. 
I want our hearts to be excited about Jesus, be passionate about Jesus, not to drift away, but to be anchored deeply in him so that when we open our Bibles, man, what you see is Jesus. When you go through life and you're thinking through a situation, your first response is, man, what would Jesus do with this? How would the gospel inform me in this circumstance or situation? What is true about the gospel in this? So, for example, I hate being in a tin can in the air with all of everybody's air and breathing on me, okay? I'm talking about the plane, right? Um, like, it, it's, it's miserable, and I just spent like 30 hours in planes last week. Like, it, it is a miserable experience for me, but I need the gospel in that situation, right? I need the gospel to inform me that the, the person that's holding that plane up is the same person that holds all of life and existence together, Jesus Christ. He has, he's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. I need to remember that when I get in the plane. So then my peace isn't found in the pilot himself in his training or herself in her training or in the plane itself and the mechanics and whether or not they did their job. My peace is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the rock of my salvation. That's where my peace comes from. I have to think the gospel when I step foot in a plane. And my dream is that we be a people that don't ask the question, what's practical? But what does the gospel say about this? I want us to have a fluency of the gospel that's unparalleled, that in our life we would speak the language of the gospel in every circumstance of our life. Faith in Jesus isn't this intellectual assent to some sort of list of doctrines. No, it's a faith in Jesus, and it's a growing, living, active relationship with the living God. That's what that is. So the cure for the drift isn't to do more, obey more, study more, behave more, but the cure is to stay rooted and anchored down in Jesus. That's the cure. The gospel's the cure. Focus on him. Fix your eyes on him. That's the cure for our drift. It's so easy to not acknowledge Jesus in the day-to-day realities of life. It's so easy for us to, to think that there's something more important than the one who bled and died for us. He is the answer for us. He's the solution to all of our issues. So with all of that said, we we know, okay, to to be anchored is to be anchored in the gospel. But what are we looking forward to to keep us anchored today, right? What's the thing that holds us on that anchor? What are we hoping in? Well, let's look at the next uh, few verses. Pick it up in verse 5. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And so the second point that we're looking at is the hope of an eternal salvation, the hope of an eternal salvation. You see, oftentimes the task of a good preacher is to first um, confront or afflict the comfortable. And then the second task is like it, but in the opposite direction, comfort the afflicted. See that? So this is afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And then that's what the author in Hebrews is doing here, right? Like he gives us a great blow to us playing church, right? He, he knocks us out of our comfort zone. And the truth of the matter is if I ended at verse 4, we just walk out the door with our heads low, right? Like, yep, I drift. Life is hard. And just walk out, right? The head's down and, and it's over. Like, like, thanks, Mo. So encouraging, helpful. Uh, but, so he does that, though. He, he confronts us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. And, and truthfully, the gospel doesn't leave us there. See, now what he wants to do is comfort us as to why all of that matters. Why does it matter to be anchored in Jesus? Why does it matter to fix our eyes on Jesus? And he's showing us the result of what God is doing with the beauty and the chaos of this world. And just let me tell you this right now. I need this. 
Like right here, right now, in my life, I need to know why I'm anchored in this and what hope is to come for me in all of that. So when we look at verse 6, it's, it's quoting Psalm 8. In the original text of this psalm, what, what the author's doing, he's just in awe, he's in amazement and in shock that God would pay attention to man. That he would be mindful of such small, minuscule cre- of his creation that he would pay attention to him. That God would even give us a glance. See, see, a similar example of that is, is me meeting my wife, Colleen. Like, when I first met her, I'm thinking in my head, like, whoa, how am I going to approach her? She's smart. She's uh, beautiful. She's funny. She's humble. And I am JV, okay? Like, I don't belong on the team. Uh, so much so that I was like, okay, let's just break this off. Like, I literally almost broke up with her over the fact that, like, I don't think I match up to who this person is, and I'm not sure why she would say yes to me, right? Like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, have you heard my story? Have you seen my background? Like, why would you come even near me? And in this story here, when we're looking at the book of Hebrews, it's not simply a wonderful woman, but a God who would find you significant. He's the one that's paying attention to us. But not only is he mindful of us, but he cares for us. He gave us a position that made us a bit lower than angels, namely giving us a body. And so we see God's original plan on display, right? We look at Adam and Eve, and we see, man, God made them a king and a queen over all of his creation. Isn't that beautiful? He he gave human beings rule and reign over what he has made. Just let that sink in for a minute. Like, let that sink in, that he gave human beings rule and reign. The intention of God is to give his people their own possession and dominion over what is his alone. If that's not reminiscent of a loving father, I don't know what is. Like, if you think about that, like a father that would create the cosmos, everything in the entire universe, and then give it to a lesser being. And not only give it to that lesser being, but be in the process of adopting that lesser being into his family. Whoa! Like, how beautiful is that? How beautiful a father to do something like that? Now, I know the story of Adam and Eve didn't end well, right? Like, they they disobeyed God. They lost their crown of glory that was given to them because they disobeyed. They sinned against the God who loved them. But the original intention of God was amazing, right? Like, like if if the plan had gone the way it should have gone, you and I would be kings and queens, dominion over everything that God has created, Right? That, that, that's the message that we're, like, when we're drifting, that's the hope that we have, that that was God's intention. That he, though we seem insignificant at times, and we might even feel insignificant, we're not. Like, we're made in God's image, designed for his purpose and plan, and have a destiny with him. He cares for each and every one of us. He cares so much that he didn't let it end with Adam and Eve's misery of ruining everything, but with Jesus' victory. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is the good news right here. He says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so after reading that, we have to pause for a minute and say, okay, who is he talking about now? Is he talking about us ruling and reigning, or is he talking about Jesus ruling and reigning? Well, praise be to God that the answer is yes. He is talking about us, but he is also talking about his fulfillment of that grand plan and design through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. 
You see, the psalm that this author is, that the author of Hebrews is quoting is a part of God's plan for man, right? But he's showing that the ultimate fulfillment of that plan is through God man, the God-man, Jesus. That's beautiful, right? Where it combines both of those worlds, both the physical and the spiritual, and shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. The author is calling our attention to the hope that we have, but he begins that with acknowledging a reality for us. And, and I'm praising him for it, that he, he, he's acknowledging the fact that that hope, Psalm 8, isn't realized yet for us, right? Like what we see in the present time is the aftermath and the continuance of the presence of sin in this world. We see destruction and chaos. We see disease and disaster. We see mass shootings. We see sex trafficking. We see racism. We see sexism. We see murder. We see adultery. We see our sin on display right in front of us. So yes, we currently don't see everything under the dominion of Jesus or under the subjection of Jesus. What we see is a rule and reign of sinful man. And so we're seeing that things aren't as they ought to be, right? Like one theologian puts it this way. He says, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain man is not what he was meant to be. It's not the way it should be. Like I said, there's good news, right? Let's look at verse 9, the first four words. It says, but we see him. That him being Jesus. That's the good news for us. Is that, yes, not everything around us is subjected to, to Jesus yet, but we can see him. We can see Jesus. We can see his plan unfolding. We do see him through the fog, through the, the fatalities, the fallacies, the fickleness of this world. If we want to, we can see Jesus. You and I have this privilege to see the unfolding work of God redeeming man to himself, redeeming all of creation to himself, and seeing that the finished work is through the person of Jesus. We can see him. We can see Jesus through what he's doing in and through our church and the surrounding world around us. See, if you want to see Jesus, man, look no further. Just go down the hall on a Wednesday night and see City Light High. Our high school ministry, you can see Jesus at work through the kids that are there, through the staff that are working, through the volunteers there. You can see Jesus going forward, redeeming people. You can see that through City Light U. Every time I talk about our church, I mention how many college students are involved. We have 300 college students in City Light U right now, and they're like, wow. Everybody's asking the question, where are the college students? Well, they're right here praising Jesus every single week, being invested in, being poured into. And you can see Jesus at work. You can see Jesus at work in the fact that we've been here for like two minutes and we've seen 130 people being baptized. That's amazing that Jesus would do such a thing. That he was, he's redeeming people. He's bringing them into life, into redemption. We can see him. In fact, you can see him in the fact that churches being planted, disciples being made all around the world. If you go to China right now, you see a movement of God never seen before where you have a, a group of people who have been persecuted and pushed down and yet giving their lives to Jesus and going to other countries proclaiming that same gospel. It's beautiful that God is at work in that way. We can see him. John 1, 5 is a promise. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It will not overcome it. The light will always overcome the dark. City light, Jesus is shining his light in and through his people. We can see him through his church. We see him through his light bearers going into the world, proclaiming the name of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus going forward. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Jesus became a man. He subjected himself to being lower than angels. He lived the perfect life that man can't live. And then he died the death that every man deserves, raised from the grave miraculously and joyfully, seated at the right hand of the Father, get this, crowned with glory and honor, as it should be. You see, he, 
he's not referring to us physically seeing Jesus necessarily, but he is saying, hey, look with your spiritual eyes, the eyes of faith. You see, sight is used frequently in the Bible as a metaphor, as a beautiful picture of our faith. Faith is the eye of the soul. It's, it's not us actively physically looking at Jesus, but actively with the eye of our soul, looking at what Jesus is accomplishing right here and right now in and through us. You see, if we look through those lenses, we see our salvation and the beauty that is in it. We can see Jesus. And notice that it doesn't say in the past tense. It doesn't say we've seen Jesus, meaning at the point of conversion or salvation. No, it's saying it's a continual, ongoing seeing what Jesus is doing, seeing who Jesus is through his word. It's a consistent relationship. You see, it reminds us back to the anchor. You see, he's saying that's what you're anchored in. You're anchored in the person, the work of Jesus. That's what it's pointing to. It's pointing to our hope, our delight, what we can hope in. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way for us. We see Jesus, for we are sure of his presence. We have unquestionable evidence of his existence. We have an intelligent and intimate knowledge of his person. Our soul has eyes far stronger than the dim optics of the body. And with these, we actually see Jesus. See, we, we were fallen in Adam. In Adam, we fall in sin, but we see in Jesus our salvation is held together and restored by that second Adam, him. And so the hope of salvation isn't simply having our sins forgiven and getting to go to heaven, but this faith that we've been given gives us hope and a new lens, a new sight to see things through. A sight that gives a glimpse into that future reality that we have with Jesus, our future hope of being eternally rested with our King. It is true that we may right now be in a battle. Life is a continual battle, right? But as we look to Jesus, we see that there is a victory that has been won and it continues to be won. And, and that's what he wants us to rest in. That's what the text wants us to find our hope in. We can experience a lot of pain, and in fact, we probably are experiencing pain right now and poverty and times of persecution, and yet these things can never rip us from the reality that Jesus is continually displaying himself to us. See, this ought to comfort us and point us continually to paying attention to what we once heard, right? The anchor, Jesus. We're not waiting for anything more to be done. The work is complete. The only thing we're waiting on is for him to complete the, the, the physical realities of that, to redeem everything as it should be, to finish that work in that way. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. You see, we live in the not yet, but Jesus is already there in the now. In, in the most difficult moments of our life, this is, this is the key right here. This is the pivot. When the bottom drops out of our world, we don't have to drift from the truth of Jesus. We have no other place to go anyway, right? Like when you're looking at it, there's no other hope that we can depend on. There's nothing else that's constant enough. There's nothing else that will hold on to its value, its joy, its goodness. It's only to be anchored in Jesus through faith. He's already completed the mission, and he's promised. He's promised to be with us to the end of it. See, he's the completion of Psalm 8. But for now, we'll live in the reality that he's already finished the work, and we're just waiting to see it. We anchor down in our future hope of eternal salvation when everything will be made right again. When Jesus does rule and reign both in the spiritual and the physical and we get to reign with him for joy, honor, and glory. Thanks be to God. Amen. So what we do every two weeks here at City Light is we take communion. And we often try to remind you that this is not just another ritual. It's not just another code of ethics. It's not just something that we do just to do it. 
No, this is a, it's a constant reminder. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he is your God, you've surrendered your life to him, then, then you take up a family meal. And that family meal is a constant reminder of that salvation, of that anchor, that Jesus really did come and die. He really did shed his blood and his body on our behalf. So when you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, that's what we're mindful of. He's saying, pay attention. This is our opportunity to pay attention, to, to re-anchor ourselves in the harbor of Jesus um, and just continue to believe and know that we have a hope that's far greater than our present reality. Amen? Let's pray.